We're going to read a lot of scripture here this morning, then we're going to bounce around, so just know that. Uh, But here we go. Leviticus chapter 6, starting at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses, Give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of the finest flour and some olive oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast in the sanctuary area. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given it as, a, as their share of the food offerings presented to me, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. It is most holy. Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. For all generations to come, it is his perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Whatever touches them will become holy. The Lord also said to Moses, This is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to the Lord on the day he is anointed, a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half in the evening. It must be prepared with the oil on a griddle. Bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces and as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is the Lord's perpetual share and is to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. The Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is spattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. But if it is cooked in a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in a priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering whose blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement for the holy place must not be eaten. It must be burned up. These are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered, and its blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. All its fat shall be offered, the fat tail and the fat that covers the internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, liver, which is to be removed with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Any male in the priest family may eat it, but it must be eaten in the sanctuary area. It is most holy. The same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering. They belong to the priest who makes atonement with them. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself. 
Every grain offering baked in an oven or cooked in a pan or on a griddle belongs to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering, whether mixed with olive oil or dry, belongs equally to all the sons of Aaron. Okay, that's where we're going to stop this morning. Now, on the outset, this section seems like a repeat of everything that has gone on in chapters 1 through 5. It just seems like we're rehashing it, but in a little shorter detail. And we are. That's exactly what is happening. But there is a difference. In chapters 1 through 5, when we looked at these different offerings, each offering started with this, if any one, or any, says any man, but what it means is any one. If any Israelite were to bring forward, say, a burnt offering, or a grain offering, or a guilt offering, or a sin offering, or whatever it was, then it listed out what was supposed to happen. Here, the focus shifts from any Israelite now to the priest. In chapter 6 into 7, what we have here are the specific regulations laid out for how the priests are to conduct themselves in the sanctuary area and how they are to administer the sacrifice. Okay? Now, what I want to do is dive into a couple of the things that they're looking at, one in particular that the priests are responsible for. But I I do want to note there's a couple of really interesting details laid out here in chapter 6. If you were to look at your text at chapter 6, verses 17 to 18, and then you look again at verse 27, you notice something fascinating. Maybe you heard it as I read it. I tried to emphasize it just a little bit. But there's these warnings about who can touch the different sacrifices. There's this phrase that is used in connection with the different sacrifices, and it would say something to the effect of, it is most holy. We'll get into that that phrase here in a few weeks, and we're going to unpack what's going on here. But what's fascinating when it talked about these most holy objects, particularly in 6.17 and 18 and 6.27, is that there was a warning given because anything that touches these most holy objects becomes holy. Did you notice that? Anything that touches them, these things become holy. Now just think about how opposite that is of how we normally assume it to work. When we think about holiness, we think about, okay, if there's holy objects, then there's unholy or impure, unclean objects. Correct? And that the unclean things make clean things unclean. That the impurity is in some way contagious. It spreads. And so that's why we've got to monitor it. We've got to keep track of it. We've got to offer the sacrifices and the cleansing rites and all of those things that are necessary so that the uncleanness doesn't affect the clean things. But here we have it also going the opposite way. That there's holy things and we've got to make sure that those holy things, that holiness doesn't spread. So we're going to look at that in just a couple of weeks. That's a teaser. Hopefully you're going, what in the world does that mean? Because I think it's kind of fascinating, and like I said, in a couple of weeks we're going to unta- unpack it, so there's some good foreshadowing of what's to come. What we're going to pack out, camp out this morning is actually in the first section of chapter 6 that we read after verse 8, around the burnt offering. If you notice, as we read through the burnt offering, there was a command that was given to the priest three different times. It was the command to keep the fire burning. Now, anytime you have three repetitions of something in scripture, it is something worth paying attention to. Three is a pretty significant number in biblical numerology, right? You got the Trinity, three persons. You've got any time that something's repeated, like holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like that emphasis of the repetition of three means pay attention to this thing. This thing matters. This thing is different. This thing is, is, is a big deal. 
And so we have in a very short section three commands to keep the fire burning. Why? There's something unique about the fire itself. If you will, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 9. We're just going to look at verse 24 here. If you think about it, you remember at the end of Exodus, you've got the, Moses and the, Lev, uh, the, the Israelites are looking out. The, 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 the tabernacle has been built. The glory of God has settled on the tabernacle, and they're looking at it, but no one is allowed to enter it. And then we get into Leviticus, and Leviticus starts to lay out all these different rules and these regulations, these rituals about how one enters into the presence of God. That's what's happening here. So if you think about it, you've just gone to Ikea, you've bought your thing, whatever it is, and now the rest of your day is planned as you're going to open up the boxes, lay out all the pieces, look at the instructions with the little guys. You're not going to read anything because they don't put words in there, but they've got the little guys. You're going to figure it all out, and then once you kind of know what's going, then you're going to start, right? So a great way to think about it is uh, the Israelites now have the instructions of chapters 1 through 8, and the process, all the rituals are now kicking off. That's what's happening in chapter 9, but we're just going to look at verse 24. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So when the whole thing gets up and running and they've now got, okay, we know what we're going to do. We know what the rituals are supposed to be. We know the people know what animals they're going to bring for what sacrifices. The priests know what they're going to do when the sacrifices come forward. When they're ready to kickstart the process, where does the fire on the altar come from? The fire comes from heaven. God himself sends the fire down and the altar begins burning. And so this command for the priest to keep the fire going is more than just a ritual. It's about maintaining the presence of God, right? It's maintaining this unique thing because if this fire goes out, we're not sure that this fire that has a direct connection to God is going to get started again. Like, we're going to have to bring a match to it. We're going to have to start it. And this is just going to be an ordinary fire that's going to lose this intimate connection with the divine. So this fire became like this conduit. It became this way in which the people connected to God. But even more than that, the fire symbolized in a very real way the presence of God among the people. As long as this fire that God started is here, we know God is with us. And this idea of fire representing the presence of God, this is not new to Leviticus. This is something that has existed with the Israelites for some time. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, starting at verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so Moses is out tending the sheep. And as he's tending the sheep, he comes across a bush that is burning but is not being consumed. This is a curious sight. We all would agree with that. And we would probably do the same thing that Moses does, is that he goes over to investigate what is actually happening to this bush. When he gets to the bush, God calls to Moses from within the bush, telling him to take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Moses does what he's supposed to do and then hides his face because he doesn't want to look at God. So there's a bunch of things to note in these six verses. One, notice where Moses is, or rather, where he is not. Moses is not in a temple. Moses is not standing before an altar. Moses is is not anywhere that is typically associated with the sacred, right? Moses is out tending sheep. Moses is out in the wilderness. Moses is in a place that is very common and very ordinary, and yet, in that ordinary commonplace, Moses comes into contact with the divine such that Moses is told, you are actually standing on holy ground. This common, everyday place has become a place where the divine is. This common, everyday place is a place where the, where the mundane touches the, 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 the sacred. It's a place where the holiness of God is spreading. All right? I mean, what, we typically think of holiness as an attribute of God. Right? That God himself is holy. It's a characteristic like being loving, or it's a characteristic like being slow to anger, or a, 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 a characteristic like being the just judge. But what we see here and what we see throughout Leviticus is that holiness is also reserved for places or things or even people. So throughout chapter 6, we saw that these different offerings to the Lord, these different parts of the animal these different grain offerings, were most holy. And that if someone come into contact with them, they would become holy. Here we're told that Moses is standing in a place on ground that is holy. Like sometimes I think we need to take the Bible even more literally than we do. We read this and we say, oh, well, yeah, it's holy because he's standing in the presence of God and God is in this, so there's this unique thing happening. And we kind of brush away what is literally being said here, but what the Bible says is like this ground, this place, this dirt is actually holy. And the reason it's holy is, yes, because God's presence is uniquely manifest here, but because God's presence is here, this, this thing has become holy. Again, this is what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. So one, you've got this ground now where Moses is that was once ordinary has now been transformed into something extraordinary. And then Moses is standing on this holy ground before a bush that is burning. Now, a bush in the Hebrew is the word sena, S-E-N-E-H, sena. Sounds like another word, or place that is very important in the history of Israel. Sinai. Sinai, S-I-N-A-I. 
Senna, S-E-N-E-H. In Hebrew, trust me, they're much more related. But you can even hear that. Right? Third, the bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed. So you have the presence of God, which is in this fire. Moses recognizes that it's more than just fire. To look at the fire was to look at God, which Moses did not want to do. This fire is the very presence of God. And yet, it's not being consumed. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Israel has, if you remember, Moses in the burning bush leads to Moses going to Egypt to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go. The whole conflict happens. The people eventually are let loose or let free. They cross the Red Sea, right? And then here we get in verse thir- uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 21. After leaving Sukkoth, they, the Israelites, camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night, in a pillar of fire, to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So again, we have fire representing the presence of God. As long as this pillar is in front of us, as long as this pillar is leading us, God is leading us. This fire is, is, is not just symbolically the presence of God. It is the presence of God. Now turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Starting at verse 15. When Moses went up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. See, it sounds almost like the burning bush, from within the bush, from within the cloud. To the is, uh, called to the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain, and he stayed there on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So the pillar of fire that was leading the Israelites now settles on Mount Sinai. Moses goes up there because God has called to Moses from the cloud. But to the Israelites who are down at the base of the mountain, they look up and what they see is a consuming fire. And Moses goes into that consuming fire. Now, is Moses consumed? No, he's not. Just future and just, no, I don't know if you got that far in the story. No, he's not. That's where it goes. He comes out later. The bush is burning with the presence of God. Is the bush consumed? No, we just read that one. No, it's not. Wow. Okay, good. You're with me, right? We're here? We're tracking? Okay. Both the bush and Moses are in the presence of God, which should be a consuming fire, but is not. This begins, I think, to mess with the thinking of the people just a little bit. Because remember, God is terrifying. Remember when they're at the foot of the Mount Sinai, they said, if we even hear the voice of God, we will be stricken dead. 
There's, there's this idea that we cannot come into contact with the divine. We cannot come close to God. We cannot even do this because God is a consuming fire. And if we come into the contact with this consuming fire, we ourselves will be consumed. We will die. There is no way that we can survive this. And yet, despite the fact that, yes, God is holy, and despite the fact that, yes, God is dangerous, we have two instances where the presence of God is consuming something and yet is not consuming. The bush was fully aflame and yet was not consumed. Moses goes up the mountain into the pillar of cloud, which is a consuming fire and yet is not consumed. Like the question is, or not the question, the reality is, is that while God is holy, holy other, and while God has an element of danger. He is, God is loving, yes. God is, is, is merciful, yes. But God is not safe. God is a consuming fire, and yet, Moses is not consumed. It's as if God is saying to Israel, I will be your God. You will be my people. I the God who is a consuming fire, will be in your midst. But I will not consume you. And I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that I'm always going to be with you. So, this fire on the altar is going to be started. I'm going to start it. And it's always going to be lit. It's never going to be out because I will always be with you. And I will not consume you. And this idea that the presence of God, the fire of God, God as fire, was with the people was extremely important to Israel. Because Israel, for for them, religion was not a social club. Religion was not a gathering of people that they really liked to see once a week. Religion wasn't a political voting block. Religion was not a way to make good citizens or to pass along good moral dogma. Religion, ritual, faith was an ongoing encounter with the divine who lived among them. The divine who was dangerous, the divine that was holy, the divine that was a consuming fire but would not consume them. And see, this is what I, as I've been studying Leviticus and just thinking over the last couple of years, this is something that I think that I've gotten wrong for a really long time. And it's this idea that to think about the way Israel practiced their faith, that it was legalistic and dogmatic and that it had all of these rituals that were done in order to earn God's favor. But I just don't think that's true. Israel was chosen by grace. Israel didn't earn the status as the people whom God was going to live among. Israel did not earn the status as a holy people or a a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is not something they asked for. And they didn't get it because they were the biggest or the best or the most deserving. God chose them as a people because God decided to do so. And that's it. It was God's choice to dwell among them. It was God's choice to let his fire reside on their altar. Because there are other altars all throughout the ancient world, but God said, this is the altar on which my presence will live. And you are a people who I will live among, and you will be my royal priesthood. The rituals then are not about earning God's favor, but they are about maintaining the presence of God among them. 
It was about them being stewards of the fire that came. It was about them being fire keepers. And to think about the rituals, this is a way, I think, to, that might be helpful for us just in terms of how the people thought about just what, what kind of force was among them. So think about a nuclear reactor. To have a nuclear reactor in your community is to have an incredible amount of power and energy right in your backyard. And it's because of that power and energy and sort of the mystery that surrounds it and the potential for danger that exists that so many communities don't want to have a nuclear reactor nearby. It's dangerous. I mean, yes, it is a source for good, and yes, it can, can positively impact our lives by providing electricity and energy and all the other things that we need. But it's, do we really want that here? And if it ends up that we have a nuclear reactor in our backyard, we are all going to want to make sure that those who work there know what they're doing. We're going to want to make sure that they are following all the protocols. We're going to want to make sure that they know what the protocols are, that they teach them to the people who get start newly, like the new recruits, like you better learn how to do this. We're going to want to make sure that they feel safe, that they have the right garb to wear, that when they go in, that they're handling things appropriately, that when they leave, that all of the things that could, like, like all the radiation, I don't even know how this works, but like radiation latches onto them, they're not taking it right into the community. Right? Like, this is the stuff we want to make sure that's happening, right? Because we recognize that there's this huge power source that's dangerous that's right there. I think that this is a helpful way to think about what Israel has. God, the consuming God, lives in our midst. Are those who are tending to the fire doing it rightly? Are they making sure that this thing that is bringing us life isn't also going to bring us death? Because it could. Are our fire keepers doing their job? Yeah. Okay. God calls Israel to be a people who tend to the presence of God among them. God has chosen from within this nation a smaller group of people, the Levites, to be the fire keepers, if you will, the ones who will tend to the altar, the ones who will oversee the sacrificial system. They are to be keepers of the presence of God among the people. But as we know, God continues to do new things. And something shifts in how God shows up among his people. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. When the day, starting at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Jesus has ascended up into heaven, and the disciples now are sitting in an upper room, and they are waiting for what's next. Jesus has promised that he's sending them a helper, but they don't know what that looks like. They don't fully understand what's happened. They, they're a little bit scared because 
Well, Jesus, the one who we thought was the Messiah, God among us, has now died. He has left us. I mean, he's resurrected, but he's left us. But now what? What exactly do we do? And as we're sitting there, or as, well, we, they, as they're sitting there, the wind blows from heaven and fire descends and doesn't send on an altar but settles on each person who's in the room. God is with us. This all-consuming fire is on us. In us. And we are not consumed. Yes, we are refined. Yes, we are purified. Yes, the chaff is burned up, but we are not consumed. We are sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in us. In this new thing that God is doing, there's no longer any fire keepers, there's only fire receivers. You and I receive the fire that is the Holy Spirit. In a whole new way, this transcendent God is even more eminent among his people. God is in you. God is in me. Unless we forget that God is in you and in me and the presence of God is among us, Jesus promises that wherever two or three of us are gathered, he is there. We are not fire keepers. We are receivers. And the presence of Jesus among us is not dependent upon a, pa- a priest or a pastor and the duties and the obligations and, the, and the, the, the functions that they perform. My responsibility is not to light the fire in you. My responsibility is not to keep your fire lit. My responsibility is simply to remind you that you are a receiver of the fire, that the Holy Spirit comes on those who declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, that the presence of God is in you and at work in you and among you. Your job isn't even to keep that fire going. Your job isn't to run around and collect wood and make sure that the altar is, 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 is kept lit or that the sacrifices continue to stay there. Your job is to trust that the great high priest, Jesus Christ, offers offered once and for all a perfect sacrifice of himself and then sent his presence to live among us in each one of you. Christ has come. Christ has saved. Receive this good news, for it is the fire that will consume you and save you. And from that, everything else that we do follows. The reason that we teach one another about how to live, the way we think about morality, putting the old, t- taking off the old self and putting on the new self, loving our enemies, practicing the spiritual disciplines, these are not means of stoking the fire. These are not means of keeping the fire lit. These are not means of piling wood up into the altar. These are how we live as a result of receiving Jesus in our life. I, I think I could put it a different way that might make even a little bit more sense. If you have declared that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you have accepted that, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
what then does it mean to live as a faithful witness to the fire of God in you? What does it mean to live as a faithful witness to the fire of God, the presence of God in you, in all these different areas of your life? See, all the things that we just talked about are ways in which we figure that out. How we begin to answer that question. So, let's make it a little specific. Husbands, as you seek to love your wives, what does it mean to do so as a witness to the consuming fire of God in you? And I think to answer that question, we really got to get beyond what, well, I, I don't cheat, I'm a person of integrity, I provide, all of that. No, yeah, okay. How are you building your wife up? How are you speaking life into her? How are you reminding her that the Spirit of God is at work in her life, at work in your life, and at work in your family's life? How are you helping to maintain that this place that you guys live is a place where two or three are gathered and the presence of Jesus is acknowledged? Wives, the same questions go to you towards how you love your husbands. What are you doing to build your husband up? to affirm him and to affirm the spirit of God that is at work in his life? How do you help remind him that he doesn't have to control or fix or manage all the situations, but that God is there and God is working? As parents, how do we, how do we help our kids become awakened to the spirit of God at work in them? How do, we, how do we point them to the flame amidst our family? How do we let them know that, uh, that this God who, can, who, who burns so brightly but does not consume is among us? What does it mean to be a person who is faithful to the presence of God in you at work? Among your coworkers, at meetings, with the different projects that you're on? These are the questions that we need to wrestle with because we are a people who have received the fire. We are a people who have received the Holy Spirit. We are the people who are markedly different because the Holy Spirit of God has come upon us because God has chosen to share himself in this new and wonderful way. God is no longer transcendent. God is intimately imminent. And so we trust the presence of God. I think, I think we also have to acknowledge this. That sometimes it does feel like the fire of God is waning in us. I think some of the reasons that we, we we focus on what type of music or different experiences and all of these things is to try to fan the flame, right? Where we get worried that there is this flame, like I had this flame, this passion for God, and this flame is going gonna, is gonna to extinguish, and so i got to do all of these things to keep the flame burning. No, 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 no. Like some of that, like we don't have to keep the flame burning. It's, the flame is Jesus himself. We just need to remind ourselves again and again, he's here. He's in my life. He's working. 
He's in this place where two or three are gathered. We simply trust that. We trust Jesus at his word. We trust Jesus, is at, trust Jesus at his word that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That no matter how dark it gets, that the light will not go out. And that he is among us, in us, in a unique and wonderful way. Let's pray. Father, let us be a people who are attentive to your Holy Spirit. Let us be a people who continually receive the fire over and over and over again. Let us be a people who never grow tired of waiting for you to, to show us again how you are among us and in us. And may we be witnesses in every area of our life to your presence, your saving, redeeming, refining presence. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.